and he becomes clearer and clearer as the passage moves on. He doesn't, he doesn't start out talking about the name of Jesus, but once he gets to that point, and he reveals who this word is, and so, you know, by the way, this person's name is Jesus. Now, there's a big thing right now going on, and I don't know if you have heard about this, but the parallels uh, between what the early church went through in the first century world and our own world are, are mounting up one after another. See, there was in this time an, an idea that something was about to happen. And it seemed like there was sort of this universal tension that something world-changing was about to happen in the first century. Rome was pushing everybody around, taking over a country, a big country, and that gave people this unsettled feeling in, in the particular area of Palestine, in the Holy Lands. There were messiahs popping up right and left, all claiming to be able to throw off Rome and to redeem the nation of Israel. These were the end times. And that's why you see sometimes the biblical writers even talk about the end is very near. We all know that. And so we get this idea that there's just this sense that something epic, something global is about to happen. Just sense it. Even pagans that didn't even really know what was going to happen and had no clue what was going to happen, just sense that something was going to happen in the first century world. It was just that time of seeking and a time of angst and change and shifting histories. And, and there was this great movement across the land where there was this sense that something big was about to happen. So John takes them and he addresses his writer and he says, In the beginning. Now that takes both the Jews and the Gentiles, that gets their attention. Because he says in the beginning was the Word, and we're going to talk about what that Word is and what the word Word means to both the Jews and the Gentiles. But just know that they are, they're in this time that they're anticipating something is going to happen. The Jewish people are anticipating the Messiah. And so John says in the beginning was the Word. And the phrase in the beginning, he chooses intentionally, by the way, because when he says, in the beginning, it takes the Jewish reader, hopefully, the same place it takes you. In the beginning, God created, right? So John takes it quite intentionally back to Genesis. And the reason he does that is because, yes, this is the God we're talking about. This is the word we're talking about. So when he starts talking about in the beginning was the word, then the Jewish people connect with that because they know we're talking about Yahweh. So they are, they are kind of the word here is Yahweh. Because in verse 10, he's going to go down and he's going to say, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Everything that was made was made by Christ. Nothing has come into being that has not been made by him, John will say. Well, the Jewish people know, okay, the word we're talking about here is God. So we're all on board with each other. Well, they're looking for what it all might be. Because when you have this anticipation in history where you're sort of anticipating something epic, something history-changing, something global, it's just on the cusp, there begins to be this desire to understand several things. First of all, we want to know where we came from. Because we believe that if we can figure out how we got here in the first place, then we can determine where it is we are going. And so even in the first century they were at, they began asking these kinds of questions. What are they all about? How did we get here? And the great philosophers of talked about how did we get here? What started it all? And where is it all going? 
And so the great philosophical schools of thought came up with their own ideas, uh, like this idea of the logos. Now the word in Greek, logos, translates into English as word. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he's got not only the Jewish people's attention, because he's taking it back to the Old Testament, clearly talking about the Creator, but now he has the Gentiles' attention because he's talking about the Logos. Now, this is a philosophical thought that resonates with him. This is popular conversation. And I mentioned before that there have been times in the past, maybe not so much now, that uh, the talk on the street was not about, you know, the latest uh, occurrence of, of you know, some political happening or some uh, social event or what's happening with this singer or that singer you know, that movie star, that this movie star. Yeah, they talked about philosophical things. Because when they talked about philosophy, it was things that meant something in life. And so these are the things they conversed about. This idea of the Logos was that there is in the universe an ordering structure that sort of began the whole thing and keeps us all together. That there is an organization to the world around us. And we can see that as the great uh, mathematicians and early uh, philosophers came up with ideas about the solar system and the celestial bodies and how they move. And they begin to calculate and predict and they realized that they could figure these things out. That there, that there was, strangely enough, an order even to the stars and how they tracked across the skies. And so they were all looking up and seeing that there is order to this universe, this ordering force they called the Logos. The creative agent, even the baby, is called the Logos. And so when John comes along and he writes in his gospel, Logos, that is, in the beginning was the Word, the Gentiles and the philosophers, they're like, well, wait a minute, this is something we ought to read. He's going to talk about philosophy. Maybe this John is a philosopher. So he's going to talk about that. And so the Gentiles are on board now. Now he has, he has the Jewish's attention because he's talking about the Creator and he's taking the lights back to this creative agent, this creative God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. The Gentiles now, he has their attention and the philosophers because he's talking about the Logos. And they all want to talk about the Logos. Because the idea was that we sort of descended through the aeons of space and time to become men, we're a lower version sort of the Logos. And our, our job, if you will, our purpose is to reascend to the Logos. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Let me say, in the beginning was the Word. You know, we're, we're very much like that, though, in our day and time. People sense, even pagans, if you look on social media, if you look on different websites, you, you always have the, the Christians, right? you always have the sort of, uh, it used to be just the televangelists and radio preachers, but now it's even the YouTube preachers, and you know, people have their own websites and blogs and the internet postings and this, that, and the other. Everybody's talking about these are the end times. And there's a sense that something is about to happen. I don't know if it's because COVID kind of taught us that, you know, things can go along as they always have for a long, long time, for hundreds of years, and suddenly then things are not like they've always been. 
And so we've had this shift that's kind of taken us aback. And so there's a sense that something is about to happen. And it's not just in our country. It seems to be all over the world people are just anxious. And they have this idea, this, this feeling that there's just this tension, this vibration, that something is about to happen in the world that is global in scale. No. In the in Israel, and I didn't know they had such things actually in Israel. That um, you might be comforted to know that in Israel um, they have their own form of TV televangelists. Uh, they have celebrity rabbis, and the the uh, most popular celebrity rabbi near Ben Artsy has said just a couple of weeks ago that God is about to reveal the name of the Messiah. Who, by the way, he has met with already. They're having meetings to get things set up. And, you know, he, and he's, of course, written a book. Right? So I'm going to write a book about the end times, and then later I'll write another. My new book is about what my first book wasn't, you know, quite right. And coming up next year is my next book, which will explain why this book wasn't right either. But, you know, there's something, this idea, this is the end times. And so we're waiting in Israel for the name of the rabbi, or name of the Messiah, who is going to come, by the way, just as the Old Testament predicted, who is going to come and restore Israel to worldwide authority, to restore the kingdom. Uh, you know, so we're all kind of waiting on, with bated breath. I tune in you know, to see if I should change my sermons or anything. And so far, we haven't got the name. Because I'm pretty sure the Bible says when he comes back, he's going to meet with a number of rabbis before he reveals himself. Um, but anyway, um, it's, just this, it's just this universal sort of feeling that people have. The UN has gone on a, uh, I don't even know what I would call it, just sort of a power grab rampage lately. They've come up with, a, uh, they've come up with a, an emblem for the UN. I don't know if you've seen this. Look it up when you get home. It's quite quite startling actually, but if you look up the uh, new statue that represents the UN, which is supposed to be, if I'm not mistaken, the defender of peace. Now, ironically, it's a huge snarling beast, but uh, that's supposed to be the defender of peace. And the beast, if you look at it, looks, it's, it's like they read through the Bible looking for some kind of statue, and they came to Daniel 7. And you have the leopard and the lion's head and the eagle's wings. And this is the UN statue. And even there's a plaque that takes that out of scripture. So I know that's where they got it. So they said, well, this would be a good idea. Let's make this. And so they did. Well, this is like biblical epic. This is like TV moment here. You know, you have the lockdowns and the mandates. And then you have the righteous pushbacks against the mandates, saying, well, we will have not have the mandates anymore. Yeah, for your own good, just as this is the previous one, for your own good, watch some news sources that are not US-based. Watch some Australian news sources. Watch some European news sources. Uh, watch some German news sources. I mean, welcome, uh, you know, people are carrying signs saying, welcome back, you know, Gestapo's, because over there, you know, if you're unvaccinated, you're you, you, you are locked to your house, and they will check your papers when you leave, and you'll be arrested. So there's a, but there's this unrest. There's this uncertainty, and the whole world seems to be in an uproar. And you have China, they know everybody. 
pushing everybody around, doing whatever they want, whatever they want, to whoever they want, including us, by the way. Because the guy we're sending to the talks is a dementia patient. And so you have this feeling that something is about to happen. Well, this was the first century. And so John comes along and said, this thing that we all feel like was about to happen, this marvelous event that we thought was going to split history in twain, this, this moment in time, it did happen. In the beginning was the word. So he starts with this popular philosophical question of where did we come from? Because if we can figure out where we came from, we know where we're supposed to be going. And you know the irony of that is? That's true. That's absolutely true. If you understand from which you have come, you know exactly where you were supposed to be going. And it's all in the book. It's all here for us. Where did we come from? Start with Genesis. Where are we going? The glory of God. Just And that's the purpose for everything in between. And so it, it is actually true. But if you start off askew with uncertainty, first of all, we have no idea where we came from. We're launching stuff into space by the tons to, to go deeper into space to figure out if we can prove. It, I, I can't figure out if they're trying to prove one theory or just disprove God. Whatever the motivation is, we've got to figure out where we came from. We know where we came from. Unless you just categorically reject the truth. So, John begins. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning and all things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life and life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness. And the darkness has not comprehended. The Creator. And everybody's on board. Everybody's excited still. And then we talk about the witness. And everybody's still on board with John. And, and he's doing great. He's doing really well with his audience. Right up until verse 14. Because when he says, and the word, which we all know, if we're Jewish, it's Yahweh. We all know it's God. The philosophers know it's the Logos. It is, it is the ordering reason from which we have all sort of sifted through the aeons. And we're trying to get back to this, this order has become flesh. And the Jewish reader slams on the brakes. And right beside him is the Gentile reader hitting the, the passenger brake. Because they're like, okay, you had us like up through verse 13, John. Good start, by the way. It's great, right up until it wasn't. He became flesh. Because Jewish people believed God was God. So holy, so transcendent, so magnificent, so uh, sinless and perfect. You, you couldn't even approach him. Much less would he become one of you. It's well with our filth and our muck and our mire. And yet, John says he became flesh. You know how holy? Jeff shared this. Yeah, I don't do Where this is. Thank you. How holy God is to, to the Hebrews. If you want a picture of just how holy they understood it. And please understand, this isn't just like, well, you know, those, those, the Jewish people were very extreme about everything. No, they didn't just, they weren't extreme in their belief. They knew how holy God is. 
So even in Scripture, they wouldn't pronounce the name of God. That I and so they would fill in other vowels for the name Yahweh called Adonai. But even, so when they came across Yahweh, as it was written in the text, they would say Adonai. But as the priest that copied the text, as the scribes that recopied the text, came to the holy name of Yahweh, they had to stop and go cleanse themselves. And then they would take up the, 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 the pen or the stylus, and, and, and there's four characters in Hebrew for the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. Four characters. So they would write one character, and they had to stop and go cleanse themselves and pray. Then they would come back and they would write another character, and they had to stop and go cleanse themselves and pray. And they did this four times because they're four characters. Because God is so holy, you can't pronounce his name. And if you're going to dare to put his name in a holy writing, if you're going to dare reduce him to a symbol of characters, then you are going to have to make sure you do it in a holy and in a way where you are pleased to work. That God became skin and bones and hair and whiskers and spit and spittle and all the things that humans sometimes don't find so appealing. That God became flesh. The Jewish mind mm, no, we're struggling with here with job. Now, for the for the Greeks, that's very different. For the Greeks it was kind of well, the Logos. I mean, we're all trying, we were trapped in this body, and our, our goal is to get back to the state of being with the Logos. That he would become flesh is sort of contrary to everything we teach. Because they thought the flesh was evil. So he, he puts on the brakes. That the word became flesh. That's how great the condescension was in the minds of Hebrews and now we've become we've become so accustomed to making Jesus earthy that you know we say things like you know Jesus is a friend of mine. Just fill it. And we we make Jesus so human that we have forgotten that He is the holy, transcendent, omnipotent, sovereign God become flesh. You think, well, isn't he? And here's the beautiful truth of it. Yes, he is. He's both. He is the transcendent, magnificent, sovereign, holy God. And he is your close friend. We should never forget either, really. I mean, if you hold him at such length and all you remember is his deity, then, then your relationship with him suffers. But if you only hold him as your friend, then you begin to treat him like just a friend. He's both. He is both God and he is your friend. The Bible says he's our brother. But this idea of the word, you see it in the Old Testament, right? The word of God came unto over and over as the prophets prophesied. It says in various times of their lives, uh, the word of God came to Elijah, the word of God came to Amos. The word of God came to the word of God. So, and you think, well, who, 
Well, how did that come to them? Well, this is what I believe. Uh, I believe it came to them in sort of an audible form because the word of God was this word, Jesus came to them. It would give them the will of the word of God. The Hebrew thought just willed the, the, uh, the power and the will of God. That's what the word of God came to represent. I think Jesus spoke to them. Now, I do not believe that happens in the same way in our day and time because we have what is the word of God in the English sense anyway. So we have the word of God, but in the Old Testament, Christ would come to them. They would share with them. He would tell them what to say. But now we have the final word of God. Which, by the way, Galatians 1, 8, 9, why Paul says, look, if anyone, including us, or even an angel, comes to you and gives you anything contradicting or additional to what we have preached to you, any other gospel than what we have preached to you, let them be damned. I think Paul's very stern about that. If anybody comes to you, and what amazes me is he says, even if it's us or an angel brings to you any other gospel than what we have preached, let them be accursed. I mean, it seems to me that if Joseph Smith had been reading the Word of God and stood out in the woods doing whatever, smoking mushrooms or whatever, when the angels came to him, he might have remembered this verse. Even if an angel comes to you, that's what he claims, right? I don't know if you know more in history. He claims that two angels brought him this day. You know what? The fact is, I, I don't necessarily doubt that. There were angels, all right, fallen angels. And that's why Paul it says, look, if even if an angel brings you a truth that's not what we have preached to you, let them be accursed. We seem to embrace the very things the Bible says, you know, don't embrace. Right? Even if an angel brings you a new gospel, let them be accursed. In other words, don't listen to it. No, let's make a whole religion out of it. The, the Bible says, call no man father except God. And then one day, the old Catholic church is sitting around saying, what should we call our clergy? We've got a pastor, not a pastor, uh, father, how about that? Oh, sure, let's do that. Like everything the Bible says, don't do that. That's what we decide to do. You know what Jesus said about the end times? His disciples asked him, Lord, is it now you're going to restore your kingdom? You know what he says? None of your business. And yet, a large section of the books written today in Christendom and by the Christian church is about what? The end times. We obsess about the end times. And Jesus has specifically said, that is none of your business. You don't know, I don't even know. Well, let's spend a great deal of time on that then, shall we? No. Here's the deal. We live for Christ over here. No matter if we're here for the next five minutes, the next 500 years, the next 5,000 years. I'm, I'm not going to make it 5,000. You're probably not either. Not uh, even 500 for that matter. Sad, really, for the rest of the world. But anyway, uh, yeah, but what have you got left? As somebody said, you know, you, you have a tombstone for your birthday, dash your, the day you passed away. Your dash is what you get. That's it. What are you going to do for the Lord you got to do within that dash? And so whether i got 10 years left or 20 or 30 or 40, it doesn't matter. So if the price comes tomorrow, great. If it comes 10 years from now, great. In the meantime, I'm going to serve him 
preach his word, teach his word, and proclaim the truth of who he is and what he's done for me. Why? Because, well, there are lots of reasons why. Number one is because he said to. So I will. But also, I just want to because I like it, because I love him. I love this word. What are we going to you know, how are we going to address this idea of the Word of God? What is that going to talk about? I'm talking about Jesus. My grandpa told me one time, he said, when you don't know what else to preach, preach Jesus. And I thought, that's great advice. Until I thought, should we just do that all the time? How about we just do that all the time? Because everything points to Christ. I was talking with Amber, who's taking a course of reading a book uh, about seeing Christ in Leviticus. Is that right? Okay, I want to make sure, because if you want to challenge sometimes, read Leviticus and find Jesus in there. But you do if you know what you're looking for. And the Old Testament's the best commentary in the Old. So John takes us all the way back to what? Genesis. Now, the dots are connected. And so there is no such thing as unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament, because even though there are two covenants, and there's an old covenant and a new covenant, there is one story. There is one book. This is not a divisible book. I don't know how we ever get the idea that just because you put the page and you have this insertion in there, by the way, that's not necessarily inspired, called New Testament, they put a page between Malachi and Matthew, Micah and Matthew, somehow we think, well, it's really two books. No, it's not. You just turn a page. When's the last time you read the book? But okay, you turn a page, a new chapter. You're like, well, look, this, this is really just two books. Well, they just sell this in two volumes, and I'll just tear it in half and start right. This is one story. This is God moving from the beginning. Yeah, what beginning? Yes, the beginning. Before you can comprehend that there was anything, because there was actually nothing, which you can't get your mind around. There was nothing except God. In that beginning was the Word. You know what the word did? He spoke. The things came into being that weren't there before. Because only word could create. Well, the word as far back as Genesis. And John said, let me tell you, philosophers, Gentiles, you were absolutely right. In the beginning was the Logos. This order, this power, this creative force. You're right. There was the Logos. There was the Word. You're absolutely right. And I'm going to tell you his name. His name was Jesus, and he became flesh. Now, other than the fact they rejected the fact that he became flesh, John was trying to tell them, look, you're absolutely right. You have within you this sense that there was something way back when in the beginning that organized everything and, and that you know, controls everything. You're right. And this force, this magnificence that you can't imagine, his name is Jesus. Now you cannot only imagine him, you can embrace him. You can love him. There's a great picture of this story that I saw all the time. It was simply because I never thought about it. Because most uh, pictures you see of Jesus are either him on the cross or with his head down in the chronicle. Now, you know what famous pictures I'm talking about? Probably they were in your Sunday school classroom, too, if you ever had a church. Or the one where he's, you know, like a stone praying for bread and people fly and stuff like that. He's always very somber. He's sort of very stoic. 
But there's this great picture in a Baptist bookstore I saw one time, uh, a painting I did, where Jesus is hugging his disciples. You know what he's doing? Smiling. Like a big, big grin smile. Laughing. And I never thought about that. I don't know why. Because sometimes, just because of my personality, you may be on the other end of the spectrum, but for me, I tend to focus on the deity of Christ so much so that I have so austere, so holy, so transcendent, so solemn, so commanding. Sometimes I'm lost on the fact that he's a real person. And he smiles. And he laughs. Did you know he and his disciples were invited to the wedding at Cana? I mean, John just says they were at the wedding, but it wasn't their wedding. They were invited. You know why? Because people liked them. So they weren't so austere, standoffish, that people didn't like them. People enjoyed them. Who wanted Jesus then? As a friend of the family. They knew Jesus. Ever think about what, what Jesus' voice will sound like? I mean, what it sounded like? On earth? I wonder. He had that, you know, magnificent sort of British deep tone voice that commanded authority, or was he like, you know, that the Martian on one body? P38, you know, communicator or whatever. What was he like? What was his laugh like? What just touched off? Life, to be known and know the very word of God. This logos, this magnificence. That I do know. I've never heard him all. I've never physically seen his smile. And it is beyond words. us this year, and that is just a, a, a love 
thank you for uh, the words of the Virgin Card. It is such a such a blessing uh, to us. In the, the last time I for this boy, the elder sweetly gave me last week. Um, so that is not what we talked about. Um, Thank you. 